Good morning. How are we doing? Good. Hey, as the kids are making their way off, I will just uh, mention a few things to you guys. One is if you are a member here at West Shore, just a reminder that we have a specially called congregational meeting tonight. We're voting on uh, our candidate for executive pastor who will be replacing John Nesbitt uh, as he retires uh, at the end of the summer. So be here at 4.30 for question and answer time. If you have some questions, you wanna meet Tim uh, Ryan, who is our candidate for that position. We're really excited about it. So love for you to be here at 4.30 for a Q&A and then six o'clock will be the meeting. So I wanted to remind you of that. Also, I don't know if you have seen the slate that is coming out in training arenas this coming uh, April 8th is when we're starting training arenas, the next round of four weeks. I just wanna encourage you to, I'm super pumped about it, to put it on your agenda because again, every time we do these, they are really aimed at helping you and I uh, grow in our ability to be equipped to engage in the cultural conversation at large through the lens of the gospel. You know, there's so many different challenges and issues that we are dealing with on a day in, day out basis. It can be really hard to know like, well, okay, how does the gospel inform the way I'm meant to think about that? And that's really what training arenas are for. That's what they exist to do. So I mean, some, there's some good stuff this coming time. We're gonna talk about like, what is the place of the Christian community in the foster care uh, system and how do we engage and care for kids in that? We're gonna be talking about things like, how do you make disciples? That's gonna come up in our sermon today. Like, what, is, what does it look like to make disciples? There's one that's gonna be on, you know, we live in an increasingly polarized cultural environment. Like what does the gospel call us to live like in the midst of a pretty polarized environment? How do we engage that? So just some really, I think, helpful stuff. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. I think I mentioned three, there's probably four other ones. So check out that slate, uh, plan on being here on April 8th for both, you know, main service, but also for those arenas. So, and then of course, last thing I want to mention is Good Friday. We'll have a Good Friday service. Uh, Holy Week, we're entering into Holy Week. Today's Palm Sunday. And then, so Friday, 7 p.m. will be our Good Friday service where we will mourn Christ's death on the cross and reflect on that. And then we will wait patiently and eagerly for Resurrection Sunday. And we will come next week ready to celebrate. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are the pearl of great price. And we would be fools not to give everything we have to get you. And so we pray today that you would give us understanding in your word. We pray that you guide and direct us. Pray that you'd open our eyes to see. Pray, Lord Jesus, that we have come now with a sense of expectation that you would meet with us in this place as you have been guiding us into your presence through worship and praise. And now we turn our attention to your word and we ask you to humble us before it Father, help me to preach faithfully according to your word. May what I say be true in full submission to your word and may it be useful and helpful that it would build up those who listen. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Shape us into your likeness. You're our king and we love you and we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. If you got your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 10. You want to find that spot, and then we're also going to be in Hebrews 12, and then towards the end in 1 Thessalonians, the first two chapters. So we're going to do a little jumping around today. So give you that heads up. You can kind of mark it in your Bible, and again, we'll put the words on the screen for you as well. So we have been in this series, we're taking a little hiatus from our series in Isaiah to talk about the cross. As we have coming, coming upon Holy Week, we just thought it would be pertinent to spend a little bit of time. The cross is the center of our faith. And so to spend some time really, really focusing in on what the cross is and what it means for us. And, you know, one of the things that I mentioned in, in the first week of this series is that, or a little mini series, really, it's just a couple weeks, is that I think that we 
pretty much get, or to some degree get, the idea of the cross is a tool for our justification, that it, it can make us right before God. It's payment for our sins, and that's right, and it's good. But I think often what we fail to see is that the cross is meant to be a lens for all of life, that we are to look at life through a cross-stained lens, and it is to define for us the ethic of our lives. It's meant to show us where to go, what to do, how to live, how we should shape our lives, that it's the cross that does that. So, so far from just being this instrument by which we are purchased for God by the blood of Jesus, we are also given this tool uh, which we can hold up to our lives and say, does my life look like the cross looks? And where it does, we can trust that we're in alignment with the things of God. And where it's not, we, we say, God, would you guide me now in a new way? Would you let the cross shape me? And I, I use the illustration, maybe you find it helpful, I don't know, uh, of those 3D glasses. You know when you go to the 3D movie, like if you put the glasses on, everything is in focus, right? Everything pops off the screen, the movie does what it's supposed to do. But if you don't, if you, have you ever taken the glasses off in the middle of the 3D movie? Everything's really fuzzy, right? Everything is like, it's, it, it kind of looks like there's three pictures on the screen and they're all mixed up and it's really, gives you a headache, honestly. Uh, and so the idea, I think, is the same. The cross is like those glasses. When we put it over our eyes, it allows us to bring everything into focus about life. So in week one uh, of this little mini-series, we talked about purpose. And how does the cross reveal our purpose in life? And what we saw is that the purpose of every living, breathing thing is to glorify God. And we can know that Actually, without the cross, we can know that because God is creator. We saw that from the word. But the thing that we saw in addition to that, though, is that we have to know, well, what does it mean to glorify God? If that's my purpose, what does that mean? And that's where the cross comes in because the cross defines for us the content of this idea of glorifying God. What does it mean to glorify God? Well, what does the cross tell me it means to glorify God? So in any given situation, I can hold the cross up to that situation and say, do my choices in this circumstance, in this situation, do they bear the marks of the cross? Are they humble? Are they servant-hearted? Do they, are they sacrificial? These are, these are the marks of the cross, right? And then last week, Ryan just did an excellent job of unpacking this idea of value for us. He took us right back to probably the most famous Bible verse in the, that, you know, that we probably all know is John three sixteen, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish but have eternal life. And the point that Ryan made so well, is that all life has value, not because that life, that value is intrinsic to life, but because God declares that it has value. And the cross is the proof. It's the evidence that God values life because he sent Jesus to redeem all life on the cross. All who would come to him can be redeemed through the cross. And so if you ever wonder, like, you know, uh, does, does life have value? The answer is yes. And Ryan, I, if you weren't convicted, man, your heart might not be beaten. I don't know. I was, I was sitting in here last week and I just, when Ryan went through that list of like, of do we value? And then he listed categories, kind of a people. Do we value the unborn? Do we value mothers who have had abortions? Do we value the person on the street? Do we value this person? Do we value that person? And he just went through, and I just said, you know what, if I'm honest, it's, I have not lived that out. I've not lived out what it means that the cross calls me to value every person my enemy, the person who I vehemently disagree with, the person who just grates on me the wrong way, you know, that the cross says every single life has value. It's easy, it's easy to say, right? It's a theory that's like, great. It's like, yes, get it. But living like that, living like every person I encounter has value. I don't just rush past them. I look them in the eye. 
I recognize the person that's standing in front of me has incredible value to God and the cross is the evidence of that. So we talked about purpose. We talked about value last week. And the last thing I want to look at with you is joy. I want to talk, we want to talk today about what does the cross show us about joy? Where does it come from? You know, we all have, we all have joy in certain things, right? We take joy in things. We take you know, less joy in other things. And the cross has something to say to us about what it looks like to have a kind of joy, what we might call just a maximized joy, like a joy that is sustainable, it's not circumstantial, that there's a joy that can be, that's available to us. And the cross has some things to say about how we find that and live it out. So that's what we wanna do today. Let's talk a little bit about joy and where does it come from. So I'm gonna give you four lessons, four lessons in joy. If you picked up your sermon notes, they're in there, you'll see them. If not, you can jot them down as we go. But here's the first one. The first thing that we see about joy and what the cross reveals about joy is that there is one thing, there is one thing to be joyful about above all other things. There's one thing to be joyful about above all other things. Uh, In Luke 10, Jesus is gonna talk about this, right? So look with me at Luke chapter 10, verses 17 through 20. Now, just to kind of set the scene here, what's happened is Jesus has sent out 72 of his followers. Uh, This is kind of a preparation, a training ground, if you will, for what it's going to be like for them when he's gone, when he ascends into heaven and is no longer right there physically present with them. And he's giving them training for his ultimate mission, what he's called them to do, which is tell people about my kingdom, tell people that I have come in the flesh and that God has come among them and has redeemed them. And so I want you to go and do this work. And so he's, he's, giving them a practice run, if you will. And so they, now this is their report as they come back from that journey that Jesus sent them on. It says the 17, or the 72, sorry, the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So you see that what Jesus is getting at here is a prioritization of joy, right? Now here's the thing, friends. Let me do a little aside first, because every time I read these verses, I feel a need to talk about the scorpions and snakes thing real quick, okay? Because we have some teammates out there who I feel like are not helping the team very much, um, because they, they think this verse is all about picking up vipers and drinking poison and acting as if those things should not hurt us. Let me tell you, if you pick up a viper, you're probably getting bit, all right? So here's the thing. This, this verse is not meant to tell you that you can go handle snakes and drink poison and everything's gonna be all right, all right? What these verses are there to teach us is essentially what Jesus is saying is when he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven and then he refers to snakes. Well, how did Satan show up in the garden in the form of what? form of a snake, What he's saying is, you have the ability to do powerful ministry because I have defeated Satan. I, Jesus, am defeating Satan. I will defeat Satan. In this case, I will defeat him. And therefore, you have the ability to do powerful ministry. Look, you just fast forward 11 chapters to Luke 21. Jesus sits the disciples down and he says, guess what? Some of you are gonna get put to death. So if you think this means you can do anything and nothing will harm you no matter what you do, no matter how stupid it is, then you're missing the whole context of the entire gospel because he's gonna go on to say, look, you're gonna stand before kings. Your parents are gonna turn you over to the authorities and they will put you to death. So that doesn't totally jive with this idea unless what Jesus is saying here is, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven because what I mean is you have power and authority in the spiritual realm to do mighty gospel work. 
Now here's what I want you to get from that church family. Are you pressing into that authority? If Jesus is saying you have authority over spiritual forces of evil because you are his and he has conquered them and you have authority. I mean, I think a lot of us live the Christian life like we have no authority, right? I was reading a great, uh, a great book called Seven Women. Uh, Eric Metaxas wrote it. He wrote one called Seven Men. They wrote one called Seven Women. It's just about men and women of faith who have just inspired him. And so he does a little biography of them. And there's a story about Susanna Wesley. And you may not know that name, but she's the father of uh, John and Charles Wesley who are, they launched the Methodist church and they're pretty famous saints of the past. And anyway, so Susanna Wesley's this mother and, and she's their mother. She's this godly saint of a woman. She's a remarkable woman. And at one point they had in, they had in their home, uh, like, and her husband who was a pastor did not believe it at first. They had just, they had something going on that was rattling and making noise. And they couldn't, the kids were scared. They couldn't figure out what was a demonic presence, right? And Susanna Wesley uh, and, and her husband Samuel, at some point someone goes, you need to get out of the house. This is like the church parish, right? They're like, you need to get out of the house. And do you know what Susanna and Samuel said? Let the devil flee from us. We don't flee from him. I love that. Because we belong to the king who has defeated the enemy. That's what this, these text, this text is about. All right, that's my aside. Aside done, okay? Put it away. Here we go. So here's, what the, here's the, the really thing I want you to see now. Okay, there are a lot of things in the Christian life that we take joy in. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. Look, as, as believers, I hope you know that you should have more fun than any other type of person, right? Because look, here's the deal. Believers should be sucking the marrow out of life. I mean, drinking it down to the dregs. There should be nothing left. We tap the goodness of life in a way that no one else and nothing else can because we know the creator of life and we live with him and we can live according to his design. There's just so much to take joy in, right? We should take joy in our family and we should take joy in ministry, right? Which is what he's pointing out here in Luke chapter 10. We should take joy in all, and we should take joy in play, right? We should play better than anybody. So we should take joy in all these things, right? But what Jesus is saying here is that, yes, there is much joy to be, many things in which to find joy in the, in the Christian life. But there is one thing, there's one thing above all those things that we should take joy in. And I don't know if you notice how he said it, right? They, they come back, they're excited. And here, the thing they're taking joy in is that this power in ministry that they've experienced, like, right? We, we've done work in your name. We have healed the sick. We've proclaimed that the kingdom of God has come and people are responding and they're excited about that. Now, is, would Jesus, who sent them on this mission to do this thing, would his response to, be, to that be, you know what, don't take any joy in that? That's a waste of time to take joy in that. No, he sent them on the mission. He wants them to take joy in that. But he takes this moment, he seizes this moment to tell them something more important about joy. He says, yes, that's, that's a good joy to have, but there's one thing, there's one great thing to take joy in above all other things. And what does he say? Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In other words, what he's saying is, for the Christian, the thing that we take joy in above all other things above play, above family, above kids, above ministry effectiveness, above money, above whatever it is. The thing we take joy in above all other things is that we have been reconciled to God, that we have a relationship with God. He's our great treasure. He's the one. 
He's the thing, right? And sometimes we get that out of alignment. Sometimes we start rejoicing in lesser things as if they're the great joy. And Jesus is here to remind us in Luke chapter 10. He's saying, no, no, no. Rejoice in this. Rejoice that, you're, that you are reconciled to God. That's what it means for your name to be written in heaven. It means that your name is written in the book of life, that you have been, you have been spared from the wrath of God and delivered into his kingdom to live eternally with him and to know him. So for your name to be written in heaven is to have God. He claims you and you can claim him. You are his and he is yours. Now, I say, we've been saying, well, how does the cross reveal that, right? Because we want to press into the lens of the cross. Well, here's how the cross reveals that, right? If that's the great objective of the cross is to reconcile, to get God glory by reconciling people to him. If that's the aim of the cross, the primary aim, then the thing that we can learn is that that thing must be the most valuable thing because the the immeasurable cost that was paid to get it. In order to have that reconciliation, the cost that was paid was so great, so immeasurable, that the thing it was aimed at accomplishing must be of immeasurable value. Do you follow that? Let's just use an illustration, right? Storming the beach at Normandy was a difficult task. Yes, it was one for which we knew there would be an immense price. There would be a great cost and everyone knew it. Why was that cost worth paying? Because the, the, the thing that it aimed to accomplish was worth the, the pain. It was worth the difficulty to free Europe and ultimately the world from tyrannical rule. That was a cost worth paying. The same thing is true about the cross. When we see how great and how immeasurable the cost was, what we understand is the thing it aimed to accomplish then must be of immeasurable value. And the thing that it aimed to accomplish is the reconciliation of people to God. So your great joy, church, your great joy, many other lesser joys, but your great joy is God himself. Now that's probably not surprising if you've been around here for a while. We talk like that a lot. At least I hope you hear us talking like that a lot. So then here's the, here's the thing that I want to try to help us understand is sometimes I think we hear that and we think, okay, God is my great joy. I got it. But we live in such a way as if um, that that's going to practically take place and practically come about only when I draw my last breath and enter into heaven, that that's when I'm actually going to find to be God to be my great joy. But until then, it's kind of a mixed bag. But I want to tell you, you can press into God as your greater joy. So let's do, let me do a little exercise. I'm going to make you move a little bit, okay? You don't have to get up and move. Uh, grab a pen in front of you if you don't have one. If you're writing stuff down, you've already got one in your hands. If you grab the sermon notes, you got those. Grab a connection card if you do. Please help me out here and actually do it. First service, there were some disobedient people, man. <laughs> disobedient people. So just work with me on this one, okay? Here's what I want you to do. It's a little exercise for you. I'm just going to give you a minute. I'm going to be quiet, believe it or not. I'm going to ask you this question. If you have to write down, I'm going to ask you to write down three things that cause you to take joy in God. Three things about God that give you joy. Take a moment. Pencils down. I'm just kidding. 
all my Messiah students just had a little tick. <laughs> all right, here's my, here's, here's my question for you. You can keep writing if you're writing. It's good. Was that, was that hard? Was that hard? Here's my next question. Perhaps it was, okay? Perhaps it was. But were the things that you wrote down, here's, here's another question, were the things that you wrote down something that you heard somebody else say? The kind of generic, like, yeah, one time I heard a preacher say this, right? Or were they born out of a personal experience with God? Were they born out of a personal, intimate, I know I, I, we interact with one another. I know this to be who he is, right? I've, I'm with him in his word. Another question that might be worth asking is, did you write down things that he does for you or did you write down things that are just true about who he is? That's worth examining as well. It's not wrong to delight in things God does for us. Ultimately, we don't delight in what God does for us. We delight in God himself and who he is. So here's why I have you do that exercise because the question becomes, right, like how, how do I, how do I, you're telling me God should be my great joy. How do I do that? Like how do, how do I do that? And this is just a, a little exercise, right, to ask the question of, I like doing this from time to time. Just saying, God, what is it that I'm finding joy in you about right now and seeing where my mind goes and where my heart goes and if it's centered in the right places. This is a good exercise, right? But now let me give you another, let me give you kind of an action point, right? Because I said that there are things that we maybe take joy in that we should not take joy in. There are things that do not, that we take joy in that do not enhance our joy in God. But if the question becomes, well, how do I, aside from just praying and spending time with God, how do I actually grow in my enjoyment of God? Like you're telling me he's the thing that's supposed to be my great joy. How do I grow in my enjoyment of God? Well, I'll give you a practice, okay? So for the next two weeks, try this, just try this. The things that you enjoy doing that are not sinful, that don't detract from God, but the things that you just enjoy doing, right? Do them, keep doing them. On the front end of doing that thing, before you go do it, just thank God that you get to go do it. Just thank him, right? Before you start, for me, it's basketball. I play basketball every Friday morning, 5.30 in the morning. I love it. You know I love it because I played at 5.30 in the morning. <laughs> and here's what I want to do. I want to, before I step on the court, I want to say, God, thank you that I get to do this. Now, here's the other side. On the back end of whatever it is that you enjoy doing, I want you to ask, God, what did I see about you because I just did that? What did I learn about you from doing what I just did? So like I tried this this Friday, right? And after I was done playing basketball, I sat down and I thought like, what did I learn, God? What did I see about taking, I take joy in playing basketball and that can enhance my joy in you if I will connect it to you, right? If I will utilize it to see something about you, it will grow my joy of you. And by the way, also my joy of that thing, which is awesome. And so I asked the question and here's what, what it, how it fleshed out for me was I recognized that one of the things that I really enjoyed seeing that day is that because God has redeemed me, because I'm a sinner saved by grace, that there's no one that I can't learn from. So I'm sitting on the court with a group of 10 guys and I'm able to learn from some of them are believers, some of them are not, but there's no one that I can't learn something from because every one of us have in common the greatest need of every human being. We need to be redeemed by God by the grace of Jesus, every single one of us. And because I'm not saved by being really wise or smart or talented, 
I, 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 there's no one that I interact with that I cannot go, wow, that person has something to show me, something I can learn from them, something I can see from them. And I love that because what it showed me is that, is that God values life, that God is the creator of it, that his image is in it. And guess what? I enjoy basketball a little bit more. And, I'm, and basketball gets utilized to enjoy God. So whatever it is, the thing that you do, try it. Try it for the next two weeks. Give thanks before you do it and then identify what you learned about God from it. It's a great exercise to challenge yourself with. Just see how it goes. See if your joy in God does not increase a little bit. Okay, we spent longer on the first one than we're gonna spend on the other ones. But here's number two. So if number one, if number one is that there's one thing worth taking joy in above all other things, and the second thing we see is over in Hebrews chapter 12, verse two, and it's this. We can't be obedient through hardship without understanding joy. We can't be obedient through hardship without understanding joy. I think many of us think that being faithful to God through our hardships, we all have hardships, right? Every single one of us faces hard things at some point. Maybe we're facing them now. We will face them at some point. We've faced them in the past. I think many of us think that the key to enduring hardship, like you wanna be faithful to God. If you're a follower of Christ, you wanna be faithful to God through hard things, right? That's fair. All right, so I wanna be faithful to God through hard things. Like I don't wanna back away from him when things get hard. If that's the case, then how do I do that? And I think many of us think that the key is that we just need to develop really solid character, really solidly godly character. And by the way, that's good. You have to have that. You have to develop and, and work towards godly character and that will help you in the midst of hard things to be faithful but you need more than just godly character. You need more than just godly character. You need joy. You need a joy that is unshakable if you want to be faithful through hard things. Now, let me tell you why I think I'm justified in saying that. Look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse two. Actually, let's start in verse one. Writer of Hebrews says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before. So he's talking about putting away sin and running a hard race. And then he says this, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So do you see what this is teaching us about Jesus, who we are to look to, right, as the author and the perfecter of our faith? That's how we're instructed there in Hebrews 12. And then it says, what are we to learn as we look at him, that he endured the cross because of what? What was it that enabled Jesus to endure the cross? The joy that was set before him. Because he had a great joy that made the cost that he was paying worth paying. Same thing we said using the illustration of Normandy, but the idea is this, right? Is that Jesus has this great joy in redeeming people for God. He says, I want to glorify God by redeeming people for him, reconciling them to him, and therefore the cross is worthwhile. So one of the things that we can learn about that is if I want to be faithful in the midst of hardships in the way that Jesus was faithful on the cross, then I have to have more than just godly firm character. I have to have a great and entrenched and a foundational joy in my life that is, that is worth whatever it is I'm going through. You with me, church? 
the key, there is a, a key to unlocking faithfulness, and that key is joy. I don't know if you knew that or not. Like I, this week to me, by the way, has been really a great week in God's word of just feeling he continues to unveil new lessons to me about joy. I have felt enriched by God's word this week. Just feeling like, yes, that's true about joy. If I want to get through hardships, I've got to have joy. Listen to how, and this is how Paul talks about it, right? In Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, I was looking at it again this morning. In Colossians 1, 24, he says something that's just, it feels like it's this close to blasphemous because what he says is, and we rejoice in our sufferings in the flesh. We rejoice in our sufferings in the flesh. So there's joy again, right? I'm able to rejoice in the midst of hardship. And then he says, we rejoice in our sufferings in the flesh and in our flesh, we are filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now that should make you sit back a second. Because what did he just say? He said there's something lacking in Christ's afflictions. There's nothing lacking in Christ's afflictions. His death was the payment for our sin. It's perfectly redemptive. Nothing needs to be added to it for me to find life in it. So in what sense could Paul possibly be saying... I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Well, what he's getting at there is he's saying, look, when I suffer, Colossians, Paul is saying, when I suffer, I am putting on display for you what Christ's afflictions were like in a way that you can't see. Because we can imagine the sufferings of Christ, but can we be physically present with them to see them? No, we cannot see the physical display of the suffering of Christ. And so what Paul says is you member of the church, you, follower of Jesus, when you endure hardship in the path of obedience, what you are doing is giving a gift to your church family. And that gift is that you are filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. The thing that's lacking is their ability to behold them. And so you, through your faithfulness, through your steadfastness, through your perseverance and endurance in that hardship, you put on display for your fellow church family for your fellow followers of Jesus, you put on display for them that there is a joy to be obtained. So the joy that Paul is talking about when he says that we rejoice in our sufferings, the joy is seeing people built up in Christ because he, through his suffering that's happening. Again, I, I, don't, I don't know if you know this, but if you begin to delight and to rejoice in seeing people grow in nearness to God and in being reconciled to God, it will help you endure through hardships because your joy that you have is bigger. It's a bigger joy than the suffering you endure. The other thing Paul says about enduring suffering is over in 2 Corinthians chapter four, and we talk about this all the time, but let's just remind ourselves of it again. He says, for these light momentary afflictions are producing for us an eternal weight of glory, which is beyond all comparison. Some versions say a peculiar weight of glory, which I like that phrasing. But what he's getting at is that there are two things to look at in suffering that, that are a greater joy, that if you'll see it and fix upon it, you will be faithful through hardship because the joy you're fixed on is more worthwhile, is worthwhile enough to get you through the hardship, okay? And he's saying one aspect of it is what you do for the church when you endure sufferings. For your brothers and sisters, you fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, Colossians 1.24. The other is that you are gaining a peculiar weight of glory for yourself when Jesus comes back. That there's a gloriousness that will be yours for having suffered that would not be yours if you didn't suffer. 
And he said, if you'll be faithful in that and you'll endure it. Well, how do I endure it? See the joy that is set before you and endure your hardship, knowing that whatever you endure will pay massive dividends, but you have to have the joy. You have to have your joy placed on those things that are on the other side of the hardship or you will not make it. Your strength of character will not be enough. You need joy. Now, a couple things to remember about that. Okay, I've already touched on these, but let's just make sure we, we identify them. Our joy must be entrenched and fixed before the hardship comes. Build your joy in these things now. You can't wait until the hardship comes. Our joy must be in something great enough to be worth the pain of hardship. And then lastly, our joy must be in something that doesn't change when circumstances change. These are all the reasons to place your joy in God himself, right? Joy usually, for most people, joy ebbs and flows. It rises and falls based upon our circumstances. When our circumstances are good, our joy is high. When our circumstances are bad, our joy is low. But in order to endure hardship, what you need is a, is a fixed point of joy that is in something that doesn't change. And that's exactly what our next point is gonna look at. So point three. And this one is super simple, and it was one of those that just hit me like a thunderbolt this week. Joy is imparted by the Holy Spirit. Look at 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 6. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 6, Paul's writing to the church at Thessalonica, and he says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction. Okay, so there's hardship again, and he's saying, you, you believed in the gospel in the midst of a really difficult circumstance. It was hard. And then he says, you received it, the word in much affliction with the joy of what? Of the Holy Spirit, okay? Now Galatians 5.22 says, for the fruit of the Spirit are what? Love, joy, and we can just stop right there, okay? Because we're talking about joy. Here's the thing that dawned on me, and I promise you, you're probably like, yeah, Trent, no duh, okay? Is that joy is imparted by the Holy Spirit. Well, what does the cross teach me? Again, the lens of the cross. Through the lens of the cross, I understand that Jesus died so in part so he could send the Holy Spirit to live in me. And if the Holy Spirit lives in me and joy is the possession of the Holy Spirit, and the fruit of the Holy Spirit, then where does it come from? I don't have to like pull myself up by my bootstraps to get more joy. I just have to ask God to impart it through his Holy Spirit, who is already in me. Is that good? Man, I'm thankful for that because I think we go after joy sometimes. We're like, it's like, it seems like it's this quest to the top of some mountain that we can never get to. It's like, how does, how does someone get joy? It like, seems impossible. And then all of a sudden, I'm reading 1 Thessalonians 1, 6. And I'm looking at Galatians 5 and I'm like, wait a minute. Joy is not this mountain to be conquered. Joy is this thing that is gifted to me by the Spirit of God who already lives in me. That, as simple as that sounds, that hit me like a thunderbolt this week. And I realized I have not been pressing into and asking the Spirit of God to fill me with joy. Do you want to know what's so good about that? 
The cross is the guarantee of the permanence of the Holy Spirit. It's permanence in my life. Ephesians 1 verse 13 says, I am sealed in the Holy Spirit. The illustration there is one of a, of a royal courier carrying with him a letter from the king with a seal. And if that seal is broken, guess what happens to the courier? He is put to death because the seal cannot be broken. That's the image that Ephesians is painting for us when it says you are sealed in the Holy Spirit. In other words, he doesn't come and go. You don't get part of him now and part of him later. You get the full gamut, the full complement of the Holy Spirit. Now, here's what's so great about that. If I need to place my joy in something that is not circumstantial, that does not change, and then I learn that it's the Holy Spirit that is the giver of joy, well, does the Holy Spirit come and go from my life? Church, does the Holy Spirit come and go from my life? Thank you. I was hoping somebody knew the answer to that. The Holy Spirit is a permanent fixture. Now, can we grieve the Holy Spirit? Yes. Can we, can we press into or lean out on the Holy Spirit? Yes. Can we ignore the conviction of the Holy Spirit? Yes. That's not the same as the Holy Spirit coming and going. Paul says in Ephesians chapter three, in this great prayer, which some of you probably know, he says, for this reason we bow our knee before the Father, Right from whom every family on heaven and earth is named. And then he goes on to pray. We pray that you would be, um, that you would know how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Right? You familiar with this? And then he says in verse 20, I'm skipping around here, but he says in verse 20, he says, um, sometimes my mind goes blank and it just went blank. He says in verse 20, I'm gonna look it up. Now, oh, thank you. That's very helpful. I just needed the first word. Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or imagine. Okay, now you expect the next phrase to be, to him be the glory in the church in Christ Jesus forever. And that is the next phrase, except that there's one more little one inserted in the middle there that you may miss sometimes. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or imagine according to the power at work within us. Well, what is the power at work within us? It's the Holy Spirit. And so what Paul is alluding to there is he's saying, the thing that you need is already in you. Now, friends, for those of you who struggle to have joy, I know these kinds of messages, they land like a brick sometimes, right? And you're thinking, it's really hard for me. I struggle, right? I struggle to have joy. But man, may it be balm to your soul to know the thing that you need to have joy. If you are a follower of Jesus, resides in you. You have it. What that tells me is, not only, not only does my joy not have to rise and fall with circumstances, it also tells me that the thing that I need to do if I want to continue to grow in joy is I need to ask God to give it to me through his Holy Spirit. To just ask and trust and then begin to learn how to yield to him in that. Now, last, last thing, last fourth lesson here. Joy is activated, or we might say catalyzed. Joy is activated or catalyzed by making disciples. So look at 1 Thessalonians, just a little bit further down in 1 Thessalonians chapter two. And this is my favorite chapter in the entire Bible on what it means to make a disciple. 
Right? That's, the, that's the biblical terminology, making disciples, the biblical terminology for helping someone else both be reconciled to God and then grow in their beliefs, in their character, and in their actions in following God, in following Jesus. That's what it means to make a disciple. Think in those three categories, belief, character, and actions, intentionally and actively helping someone grow more like Jesus in those three things, their beliefs, their character, their actions. Listen to what he says about joy at the end of chapter two. He's just gone on this whole long explanation of of how he's discipled them. And then he comes to the end in verse 19 and verse 20, and he says, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Say you caught that he uses joy twice there, right? Yes? So the first time he says, what's going to be our joy when Jesus comes back? So it's a future joy that will be Paul's because he has made disciples of the church at Thessalonica, right? That he has invested in them and given his life to them so that they might know and savor Jesus Christ. And then he says at the end, for you are our glory and joy, present tense. So he's saying both my future joy and my present joy are catalyzed. They're brought about, activated by the process of making disciples of you. Now here's the thing that that tells me. It tells me in addition to all the other things we've already seen about joy, it tells me that that in the Christian life there is no greater joy than seeing people grow in the image of Christ and to spend my time and energy so that that takes place and to do it intentionally and actively And a great question then that I would ask myself and I'd encourage you to ask yourself is to say, if I'm not experiencing much joy, perhaps I should ask, have I ever made a disciple? Or am I actively making disciples now? Because it seems to me that what Paul is saying is that there is immense joy to be found. There's immense joy to be found. But in order to find it, you have to be about the work of God in making disciples. And if you'll be about it, if you be about that work, you'll begin to find it's hard. Don't make any mistake about it. It's real hard, okay? But in the midst of that hard, you will find what Paul is saying to the church, the Thessalonians. He's saying, oh, you are our glory and our joy. And I also know that in the future, when Jesus comes back, I'm gonna boast in what he's done in your life. And he used me to do it. You are our glory and our joy. Man, church, I want you to see that. I want you to get it because it's, it, what he's saying is being about the work of God and making disciples, it catalyzes joy. And if you want joy, be about the things of God. Be about the process of making disciples. So let me just be super practical here for about three minutes and then we're gonna be done, right? Because here's what I hear all the time. I hear this from uh, older men and women who have walked the Lord for a lot of years and they usually say two things to me if they're struggling to engage in making disciples. The first thing they'll say is, uh, I don't know what to do when I meet with somebody. Like if I were to meet with someone, I just, I don't know what I would do, right? One, go to the training arena on making disciples. Guess what? April 8th, we're gonna help you, right? Two, they say to me, I feel a little sheepish or awkward about approaching someone and saying like, let me disciple you. Because that feels arrogant somehow. If I can put that one to rest, you got to get that out of your head. Because there is a generation of young men and young women that are aching for someone to say, let me invest my life in you. They're just aching for it, right? So take that step. 
But let me give you a couple practical things. Okay, I'm not gonna give you a curriculum. I'm not gonna give you nearly as good a stuff as you're gonna get if you go to this training arena. But I'll tell you this. You will not go wrong if you meet with someone, do, do four things. Number one, when you approach them, set expectations. Hey, we're gonna meet this time every other week or every week, or this is when we're gonna meet. We're not gonna miss. And when we do that, um, we're gonna do it for six months. We're gonna do it for a year, right? Set, set a timeline. Just do that. Because one, they're gonna need to move on and get built into by other people. You sh- like, sometimes there's too much of this expectation that I'm gonna get all my spiritual nourishment from this one person. I'm gonna find my guru. It's gonna be awesome, right? Nobody is that, okay? Let go of that notion. So set expectations. And then do three things every time you meet. Open God's word together and look at it and study it. You don't have to be a biblical scholar to do that. Philippians chapter one, verses one through six today. Here we go. Let's learn it together. Number two, ask what's going on in their life and see if there's not some wisdom that God might impart through you into whatever their circumstances are and try and apply what you're learning in the word to the circumstances of their life. Number three, pray together. If you just do those three things every time you meet with someone and you do it consistently over a period of time, you will bless them. You don't have to have the answer to every one of their questions. You don't have to be the one who can answer all their deepest life questions to be a good disciple maker. You can help them grow in their beliefs about God, their character, and their actions by doing those simple three things. Now, on the other side of that, if you're on the younger side and you're saying, hey, I, need, I want someone to disciple me, let me encourage you along a couple things. Again, one, don't look for one person to be like your, for the rest of your life, this is gonna be the guy that's gonna give me everything I've ever needed. That's silly, don't do that, okay? Do this. Look around, see an older man or woman who you really respect, who you think is doing something that you wanna learn about really well. Like that person seems to really know how to pray. That person seems to really know how to study God's word. That person seems to really know how to raise kids. That person seems, you know, you name it. Whatever it is that you're wanting to grow in, go up to them, say, I've noticed that you seem really good about this. Could I I get together with you? And if you really wanna sweeten the pot, could I buy you lunch four times and ask you questions about how you do that? They will say yes. Can I just, get to, I just want to meet with you four times and I want to pick your brain on what it looks like to be a dad. I got a ton of questions and I have, I have an inkling that you might have some insight on those. Could I ask them of you? And you'll find that it helps the person who's thinking, I, wouldn't, I don't know how to disciple, but if you ask me specific questions about how to engage at work in a way that honors God or how to be an entrepreneur in a way that honors God or if you ask me how to study the Bible, which I've done a lot over a lot of years, yes, like I can teach you some skills about that. I'd love to do that. Let's get together. Plus, you've told them you're gonna come with questions prepared to ask them and that's gonna guide the conversation. That's a huge win, okay? So that's just some practical tips. I wanted that to be super... Super practical, but how you can actually begin to engage in disciple making. But the whole point is really this, and let me just bring it back, right? Is that disciple making catalyzes your joy, and if you're not engaging it, you're gonna miss out on joy. So those are four lessons that God gives us in the realm of joy. So we're gonna close with some time with just a song in worship. So team, you guys can come back up. And here's what, as they're getting set up, let me just, let me just encourage you, okay? Here's what I want you to be thinking about. Perhaps one or more of those four things that we talked about, about joy, uh, is striking you. Maybe you've misprioritized your joy. 
Maybe you failed to see, uh, maybe you've been, for lack of a better term, ignoring the Holy Spirit and not recognizing that he's the one that has the joy that you need and you can ask him for it, right? Perhaps you've been missing in, in one of those four, perhaps you haven't been engaging in the disciple-making process and you realize I'm coming up short in joy because I'm just not engaging with God's work. Or, you know, the second thing we said, right? Maybe you're recognizing that you, you failed to be faithful in the midst of hardship and it's because you don't have a greater sustaining joy in front of you. Kind of what was in my mind as I was preparing this week and praying for you is that, you know, one or more of those might strike you as like, I have so much, I, have, I want to grow in joy in that area. And the cross is informing, it's the lens through which I'm looking to see, yes, I need to grow in that. So it's kind of this picture of all of us with open hands, just kind of saying, yes, God, teach me about that. So we're gonna do something now that actually helps you grow in joy as well. Do you know that when you rejoice, you grow in joy, right? So I couldn't teach all the lessons are about joy. There's too many to do a 40-minute sermon, but there's, there's a little fifth bonus one for you, right? When you rejoice, you grow in joy. So we're gonna rejoice together in the Lord, and then we'll receive the benediction. So why don't you stand with me? I'll pray, and then we'll sing. So Lord, we come now to rejoice in you. I just pray now, Lord, with this sense in my heart that perhaps there's, there's a wall up in some of us just not, not wanting to hear what you would say to us about joy. And I, I pray in your gentleness that you'd take that wall down and in your mercy that you'd do that. And I pray that you would take now what we've seen in your word and you would cause it to bear fruit in us a hundredfold. In Jesus' name. Amen.